Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. Instead of our usual intro, you don't get to know what happened in Iowa or Ontario this week. You're going to have to save that till next week. We're going to do a little mini, mini interview where I talk to Katie about some things that actually ended up coming up in the episode that follows. So it's a little bit backwards, but you're going to find out some context that is going to make the interview make more sense. And as a trigger warning, we're going to talk about some heavy stuff in this episode. So things like cancer and the possibility of a termination of pregnancy and some other stuff. So if those things are sensitive to you, if you don't think that you're in a place where you can talk about those things, or sorry, we're, we're talking about them. If you can't listen to them right now, then that's okay. You can skip this episode and join us again next week. So Katie, how are you feeling about this? Uh, a little nervous. Um, last night, you know, preparing for this, I was I was supposed to have made you an outline of questions. <laughs> yeah, I'll figure so, it out. So now you're on your own, whatever. Um, I pulled out my notes from the situation that we're talking about and then Googled a couple things. And when it came back with the first result with, is this situation a death sentence? I uh, shut it down and figured you could just figure sure. out what to ask me yeah on your so own. yeah so. we're on my well, i'm on my own, You're on your with own. You. so i guess i know bits and pieces of this story but i haven't actually heard it from kind of start to finish in a continuous story so we're gonna try and make it a little bit that way so what time period are we actually talking about in your life today we're talking about so to, to begin at the very beginning like the sound of music as it were since we're you know alone together um, I had the girl child after four years of fertility treatments, and she was born in December of 2016, and when she was six months old, our doctors said, you know, if you want another baby, you might want to start trying right away, because it might take another four years, and I got pregnant the first month. Um, so when I was uh, six or seven weeks pregnant, I was at a you know routine doctor's appointment, and for anyone who hasn't seen me, I'm real pale and real freckly. And um, when the dermatologist asks about things like blistering sunburns, I generally just laugh. And I'm a farmer, uh, you know, so we're not great about sun protection or anything like that generally. Um, anyway, it I was at a routine doctor's appointment with my doctor who is who we're interviewing today my you know my family GP and I said hey I have this mole on my arm and it looks different and it seems like it's growing faster than I would anticipate and it turns out that during pregnancy the same changes to hormones that allow a baby to grow also allow tumors to grow very quickly and very aggressively um and so this thing had like doubled in size in a few weeks and 
didn't look like anything scary, but, you know, uh, note for everybody, anything that's changing on your body should be looked at. That is just a strong better safe than sorry. So my doctor said, well, I'm sure, you know, if it's, if it's anything, there's three types of skin cancer and two of them are pretty, you know, we cut it off and then you just go on your merry little way. And then there's one that is, until about the last decade, has been a death sentence um, because it does not respond to chemo or radiation or anything like that. Um, so the doctor said, you know, we'll biopsy this and send it in. And not my first skin biopsy. Um, and so I expected it would be a week or two and I'd get back a meh, it's a weird thing, like all the other weird things, sort of result. And instead we had, uh, Jim and the girl child and I had gone to the fertility clinic for our ultrasound to prove that the boy child was a viable pregnancy. Um, you know, so like, as happy as we could possibly be about this whole situation, literally walked out of that appointment, went to the Habitat Restore, and got a call on my cell phone from my doctor's cell phone, which is not ever going to be good news. And, you know, I had anticipated it would be at least a week before I got any results, and it was uh, just over 24 hours. Um, and she called to say that I had melanoma. And with skin cancer, it can't be staged until they cut it all out. Like, general treatment for melanoma is to cut and they just keep going until it's gone. Um, there are some new immune therapies coming out that have shown great promise, but it's a very hard thing to treat. And skin cancer is treated very much as a, a minor thing, but your skin is your largest organ. And it turns out that it is very important to have skin. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, yeah, that's it's right. not something you can so just, remove. I'm going like to backtrack a little bit just for context. You know. What size of yeah. a thing are we talking about? You know, like, was it, you know, like we're using coins. I mean, Americans like to use football fields. Clearly it wasn't that big. But like what what made you <laughs> yeah, what what made yeah, you, so yeah, what football made you field. notice it? And, and kind of yeah. what size are we talking about? I'm just thinking if someone, you know, sees something on their own skin that they're worried about. What what did you see? Yeah, so that was part of the whole confusion. I mean, obviously, my doctor knows what a typical melanoma looks like. They're generally very dark. They're generally big and uneven and fucking gnarly looking. You like, can Google that. You know, the, the... Yeah, yeah, don't. Well, I mean, do, because it's good to know what they look like. But uh, be prepared, because they're generally pretty damn ugly. Um, the one I had was smaller than a pencil eraser and fairly white, which is generally pretty abnormal because melanoma is actually a cancer of the melanin cells that make your skin whatever color it is. Um, and it had started, like it had grown quite a bit and it was bleeding, which is, if you have things on your skin that are bleeding just kind of by themselves. Yeah, that's also as go to the damn doctor. That skin biopsy is not nearly as bad as ignoring whatever that thing is. So 
uh, you know, generally good rule of thumb, um, mostly with things on your skin if they're asymmetrical, if the borders aren't clear, if the color's weird, the diameter's bigger than a pencil eraser, and it's evolving. So if it's changing, those are all bad signs. And um, it is really important to check your skin, especially your scalp, your back, the bottoms of your feet. Um, yeah, so anyway, had a thing that was totally atypical for being anything. And it was right. definitely So you something. get the call from your doctor. And so your uh, very good day takes a bit of a turn. And so what is what is the next step from there in that in that moment? What what did you get told or what were, where were you headed next? The staging for melanoma involves a lot of how invasive it is. Um, mine was deep enough to be stage two. But without further surgery, they can't tell if it's involved the lymph nodes or if it's invaded your organs. And these are the problems is that melanoma spreads by basically breaking off tiny bits of cell clumps and just sort of doing its thing. Um, so the other thing I found out is that I can no longer donate blood because it is technically transmissible. Um, I can't donate organs because, again, technically transmissible. And most importantly for me, it can be passed through the placenta, which means that my baby was at high risk as well. Um, because it can be passed through the blood. So it's not, you know, it's not technically contagious. Like, you're not going to touch the blood from someone with melanoma and, like, immediately right. grow yeah. a cancer, like, bleh. But, you know, but still, they mm -hmm. don't really yeah. want to inject yeah. it into choice. somebody. Um, yeah. The issue being that because I was so early in my pregnancy, the surgery to remove the lymph nodes to look for cancer... They use injectable dyes to track which lymph nodes the tumor is draining to. And that dye in particular is not at all safe during pregnancy. Um, and so the, like, sort of the, the real highlight of the whole thing was that the best, safest for me option that we were given mm -hmm. was to terminate immediately and do the surgery. But because tumors respond to pregnancy hormones by growing at such an exceptional rate, um, we would not be allowed to have another baby. And, you know, with, with one baby at home and only being seven weeks with the other, but with no guarantee as to how bad the melanoma was, you know, I mean, it was unlikely to be anything really horrific but it also shouldn't have been melanoma right, in the and first it wasn't place presenting so, in a way that seemed typical know, so it nope. didn't seem like anything was yeah. typical about yeah what was happening yep um so the you know the first option we were given was to terminate immediately and this was during the same time that the state of Iowa was trying to pass a 6 week abortion ban so that you know, they make a big deal of, well, you know, there's exceptions. But to to have this ban being discussed at a time that I would have already been far enough along that I would have had to get the state's permission mm -hmm. if this ban had passed. 
um, you know, with, with no regard to my doctor or my family or any of the other doctors. Um, before I was transferred to Mayo, I had, I think Coley said that there were 25 different medical professionals consulting on my case. So the idea that the state would have had the right to tell me what I could and could not do um, with my own body for a baby that we wanted so badly um, was really yeah. offensive. <laughs> like there's, there's no better way to put it. And I am generally pretty pro-life, you know, but at the same time, until we give families the support they need and we deal with the fact that shit happens, you know, um, I kind of think that we should be trusting families and their medical providers yeah, to make these decisions. Um, so you had, obviously, from your own doctor, went to yeah. a, a team of people who were consulting on what was next. At what point did you decide that termination wasn't an option for you? So the next step from there was to do genetic testing. Um, to make sure that the baby wasn't carrying anything that might influence our decision. Um, and he wasn't totally healthy. And from there, we basically just talked about the odds of whether it was likely to be a nothing or whether it was likely to kill me and whether if it was that bad, if it was likely to kill me before the baby came. Um, and it's, I didn't, you know, I mean, this was, the boy child was now five last week. So it's been quite a while. And I'm just now realizing that at no point was I really worried about my health or the risk to myself, except as whether I was going to leave my kid without a mother or whether I was going to leave two kids without a mother, or whether I was going to terminate a pregnancy that we wanted so much and then find out that it was mm -hmm. relatively nothing. Um, you know, without the choice to have another one. Um, and the surgery was not safe until I was into my second trimester, so we had two and a half months of waiting and hoping that it wasn't you know spreading all right. over my body or so something when you talk horrible. about surgery that was um, just that was to remove honestly, what was visible and what was underneath the skin in that spot but they weren't going to be able to do the investigation of lymph nodes or anything like that until later or what was what was the surgery they were talking they did the whole thing at once because it into the second trimester the okay. die gets a little bit safer um and I was transferred to Mayo Clinic because they're able to do it. Normally it's done with two kinds of dye, and Mayo Clinic is able to do it with one. Um, still not super safe, but, you know, better than waiting nine months to find out what's happening. So they did what's called a wide local excision, which in my case was, um, it's a football-shaped chunk about three inches long. And I think about three quarters of an inch deep. 
And so for quite a while, it looked like a, a shark bite out of my arm because it goes down into the muscle and just takes everything because they have to get a clear border on everything. And then they removed two lymph nodes from under my arm at the same time. Um, and thankfully, they were all clear. So I am now five years out, which means that I am no longer doing every six months with the dermatologist. I still have to go annually, but for a while it was every three months. And it's, if anyone wants to know why I have no sense of privacy or shame or anything, um, especially at Mayo Clinic, they, they photograph you for skin mapping. And it's, normally I would anticipate being paid very well <laughs> for photographs of that nature. Let's put it that way. It is yes. very thorough. At this point, you know, talking about my fertility treatments is like, meh, you know, yeah. there's no photos. So, um, yeah. And to have it, I mean, obviously to have everything come back clear at that point was the best possible news. But to be treated like that just meant that it was all fine and dandy um, with no regard mm -hmm. to what the last three months had been like was really harder than I expected. Um, it turns out that there is such a difference between being cured of an illness and being healed. And um, that's one that's going to take yeah. quite a while, you know, and is... There's no getting through it yeah. faster. You so. talked before about looking at the odds. Do you remember what the statistics were like? Like what what those discussions and what those discussions were like when you were, were talking about what the chances were and, and how you made a decision based on, you know, I mean, it was based on science, but also based on so many unknowns. Um. I I stopped googling before I got to those odds last night because I googled when it when it was diagnosed and it was right not helpful. It's it's not a good rabbit hole to go down. Um, my risk of reoccurrence is still quite high because I'm relatively young. Melanoma used to be an old white dude's thing on their nose from playing golf or driving tractors. Um, it is now rapidly becoming the most common cancer among women in their 30s and 40s because of tanning bed usage and things of that nature. Um, the numbers are getting better with immune therapy, but generally it's not so much what the risk is of it being a bad stage, but what the risk is if it is a bad stage, you know, it's it's very unlikely to be worse than a stage one or a stage two, which is just um, that it has not spread beyond the original tumor, that it's not into your lymph nodes, it's not spreading through your body, whatever. But if it has spread, the even the one-year survival rate is real bad. And especially having the girl child, you know, be 16 months old. The thing that was absolutely the scariest was that she wouldn't remember me because she'd be too young. And so the 
that honestly is a lot of why I do this podcast because it leaves something and I mean I have gotten through this part of the melanoma it could come back an airplane could fall out of the sky and crush my house with me in it like there's you know none of us are ever given any guarantee but the idea that my kids could be raised with just what other people could tell them about me um it's terrifying it's you know now they're old enough that they probably <laughs> remember how weird i am and we take a lot of photos and we take a lot of videos because that was absolutely yeah the scariest part and it's yeah, yeah it's not something Look at yeah. me, like getting all it's emotionally. It's not something most here. of us have like. to think about at that time, though. Like you know, when when I was pregnant, I was very yeah focused on you know myself. Kind of, I guess, similar to what you said in the sense of like making sure I was healthy and you know eating the right things and doing the right things because I was growing a baby, and it was almost you know outside of yourself in terms of like it's not really for me, it's, it's for my child, but having to make those types of, of decisions while also growing another person is, is huge. Can you talk a little bit about the decisions in terms of what that was like within your relationship and how your husband coped with that time? Or is that something that is out of bounds because that's his, his story to tell? It's not out of bounds. I think Jim is a much more everything will be okay mm -hmm. kind of person than I am. And I think we're both kind of in that position of we can't think about what will happen if it's not okay. So we're just going to assume that it will be. Um, but it's different when it's your body. And one of the things that was really hardest for me and took the biggest toll on our marriage was that he understandably and rightfully didn't want me to feel like he was pushing my decision one way or the other. But that also feels very much the same as not being supported in making the decision. Um, and probably if we hadn't been coming off so many years of the same sorts of issues with the fertility treatments and having a high-risk pregnancy with the girl child, um, it might have been very different. But it's it's been a, a long road. And that emotional toll was a lot more than I had anticipated because nobody else can be in it with you. Um, and being a person who struggles with letting anybody else into my struggles anyway, and then literally being in something where nobody else can help you with it. Um, and feeling like, I mean, my doctors did a great job, but when you get sick or something goes wrong, you anticipate that you'll go and they'll fix it. That is literally what they're supposed to do and so to realizing that as I've become friends with my medical providers because we spend a lot of time together and we live in a very small town 
um, the level of frustration and fear that that must be like for them to deal with not being able to fix it. I mean, people become doctors because they want to fix shit. And that lack of control was really the big one, I think. And the, the upside is that my doctor did actually have another pregnant woman came in with a, a weird skin thing a couple months later. And she said, you know, normally I never would have biopsied it because you're not the target demographic. Mm -hmm. It didn't look like a melanoma. And it turned out that wow. that woman also had melanoma. But it was much more straightforward for them to deal with because they had just done it with my case. And thankfully, she was further enough along that it was able to just be dealt with right away. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it is a whole thing. It's a whole so thing. So after surgery, was the remainder of your pregnancy, I hate to use the word normal, but was it typical? Were there any other things that you needed to, to monitor or once they kind of had determined that it hadn't spread to your lymph nodes and they had removed the the cancer, did things kind of go along as normal or were there ex extra, extra <laughs> things that needed to be? There were extra things, but none okay. of them really had to do with the melanoma. Um, I had insulin controlled gestational diabetes with both kids, which started three weeks earlier than is physically possible <laughs> of course. Uh, with the boy child. It's, you're not supposed to be able to get gestational diabetes until nine weeks. And I was back on insulin at six weeks. Um, upside of seeing a very small medical practice and especially back-to-back -back pregnancies is that nobody doubted any part of it when right. I came in and said they remembered you. Um, my blood pressure also went through the roof, which, you know, oh, you stress levels. I don't know. We have <laughs> yeah. a 16-month-old at home, and I'm like doing cancer treatments while pregnant. I don't know why I'm stressed. Um, you know, and it's... Yeah, we're very, very lucky to have two beautiful, healthy children. Um, but I also, you know, had to have my tubes removed when the boy child was born, which thankfully I had a scheduled C-section, so taking your tubes out at the same time is pretty damn easy. Um, but I, I, like, I haven't even started coming to terms with what it's like to spend so much time trying to get pregnant and then to get pregnant really unexpectedly both times. I mean, you know, we'd been hoping for a long time, but after that long of hoping, you don't expect it by any means. Um, and then to have my choice of having more children taken away like that was unbelievable. And, I mean, our family is, is complete with the children we have. And it feels very selfish to say but but what if I had wanted more like more than the two babies that we weren't going to have um and you know more than the not dying of cancer while I was pregnant kind of thing like but to get that opportunity back and then to have it taken away again like that was 
very difficult. And especially when you feel like you should be grateful for what you got. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, but yeah, everybody else yeah. just gets and to it's like not that have you're 12 not kids and, for your life, you know, but, but yeah, the, the removal of, of yeah. choice, go figure not having choices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then to be dealing with all of this during this abortion ban debate, um, and seeing just so much in the, the public discourse about, you know, that abortion is for lazy, stupid women who are too lazy and stupid to use birth control. And to see no discussion of cases like ours or cases where birth control fails or, you know, just or where the baby's or, sick or or or, or whatever right? else yeah. happens. It's none of your goddamn business because you're yeah, not the medical exactly. team and it's there not your body. So so many reasons oh. and each of them is unique and each of them should be treated that way right and like you said that medical professionals yeah. and the people bearing the children should be the ones that get to make the choices over their bodies and especially in our situation the idea that i was at the mayo clinic in rochester which we are very fortunate to live close to it is one of the best cancer centers in the world. And the idea that the state government would have a panel not of specialists from the best cancer center in the world debating what was best for me and my family is like mm-hmm. head explosion. Horrifying that that's considered a reasonable, a reasonable use of their time you know, or of mine, and that God knows how long it would take to get through their appeals process, you know, and. Yeah, yeah. it is a whole thing. It's a whole so thing. So on that note, so. why don't we go into our interview with Katie's doctor, Dr. Coley, and we're going to talk about lots of other stuff, but it felt like some context was needed for the discussions that ended up coming out of that interview. So we hope that this combined with our interview creates some kind of a cohesive story, cohesive idea, some things to think about and that, um, in that you enjoy, I don't know about if enjoy is the right word, but if I hope that this episode makes you think and maybe, um, is helpful to you in some way. So here she is. Today we are excited to be talking to Dr. Coley Barbie, who's a family physician in Iowa. We start each of our interviews with the same question. So this is a way for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. And we ask, what are you growing? So for our farmers, farming guests, that covers crops and livestock, but it can also cover families, businesses, career, all types of other things. So Coley, what are you growing? I am currently, I am not at all a farmer and currently um, actively killing some basil. So <laughs> perfect. <laughs> trying to grow, I'm not much of a gardener. I moved to Iowa and once, once I was here, learned a lot about farming. I'm originally from Maine. There's a lot of aquaculture there. So I know a lot about the ocean and fishing. I know next to nothing about farming and am not a very good grower, but I try so hard. Enthusiasm counts for a lot. (laughs) Yes, my sad, sad basil is um, kind of testament to my growing ability right now, I think. So, (laughs) 
Um, I am currently kind of growing my skills in integrative medicine. I'm uh, currently enrolled in an integrative medicine fellowship. So my I have about nine months left and that has been a really good um, addition to my family medicine practice. Um, so I, I would say I'm, I'm growing in knowledge and commitment to using kind of holistic um, ways of treatment and healing in addition to um, Western modalities. And, and that has been really excited and exciting and interesting. Um, I have about nine months left in my program, and then I hope to be double boarded in family medicine and integrative medicine. So can you tell us more about what integrative medicine is and why it's important? Uh, Absolutely. Um, integrative medicine at its most basic really is looking at a person holistically. I think family medicine general does this in, in general does this pretty well. We don't look at people as being, you know, just one body system. We look at you as a whole person, but integrative medicine is kind of taking that to the next level. So you are looking at people's um, exercise habits, eating habits, their family, their spirituality, the community that they're um, a member of, you are using, you know, you use all of the conventional pharmaceutical medicines, but in addition to that, you know, work on diet changes to help with certain health conditions, supplements, um, you know, just, just a more holistic way of, of looking at, looking at medicine. So that's, that's the, the brief definition. You could go very in depth and, um, there's a lot, it's, it is a two-year program that I'm doing, so. Um, there's certainly a lot to learn, but um, that's the that's the basic explanation. So, how did you end up in rural medicine, and how did you end up in Wacan, Iowa, for that matter? I mean, it's not a it's a nice town. Don't get me wrong, but it's not <laughs> like a hotbed of anything. Yeah. Really. So I, the reason that I went to medical school is because I wanted to do rural medicine. I, I grew up in a small town of um, about a thousand people. It was also um, rural, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And what I noticed is it's really hard to cobble together a living in a rural area sometimes. And um, people's health suffers as a consequence. And one of the biggest um, factors that determines um, how healthy a person is, is actually the zip code they live in. Um, I thought that was deeply unfair. And so the whole reason I went to medical school is to do rural medicine. Um, I thought I might go back to Maine to do that, but um, it turns out the Midwest is really a great place to practice family medicine. You get to do a little bit of everything. Um, and so I did my residency outside of Milwaukee. Um, it was my first experience in the Midwest, and I, I really loved it. And I honestly had interviewed at a job um, that some of my residency mates thought thought that I might like, like the Prairie du Chien area, which is just just across the river in Wisconsin. And I honestly said, "Well, if I'm going all the way out there, I might as well do another interview." And just literally like close my eyes circled the finger and like dropped in Wacon. <laughs> and like, so very much on a whim, had never been here before, had never, had never been to Iowa before. And when I came, I met the people who worked in the clinic that I now work in and just realized these are my people. And just, I, I knew I wanted to work there. 
because the the group of people that I that I now work with I just love and I said this is exactly the type of thing I want to do and where I work now allows me to do a little bit of everything I see patients mostly in clinic I also see patients in the hospital I do some ER work um, up until about six months ago I delivered babies and so I see see a little bit of little bit of everything I'm never bored and and continuously happy that I moved here even though if you'd asked me before I started here, Iowa would have been the absolute last place that I saw myself. <laughs> but I love it here, and Midwesterners are very much like Mainers, so it feels like home. Well, I have to say I'm incredibly glad that you ended up here, no matter how randomly it was. Um, <laughs> me too. For our listeners who might not have guessed yet, Coley is the family physician that my family sees, and... I have to say, we're incredibly glad to have a family doctor that sees all of us for everything that we need. Um, Coley delivered our younger child. She sees all four of us. And from a, from an integrative perspective, it's amazing to see one medical team for everything, you know, and who sees our whole family, who sees us for everything that we need, who's, you know, even if we have to be passed on to a specialist that we still have a team who knows us as humans um, because especially once you start getting shuffled up into uh, larger facilities, you become a, a patient number in a file pretty quickly. And it's really nice to have somebody at home who knows you for something besides, you know, what's in your chart. Um, so and I, I love seeing the whole family and it, is really a good opportunity for me too to, you know, you might bring one of the kids in and I'll just say, well, how's that thing we talked about last time? And, and you know, it's a great way for me too, just to keep, keep a good tabs on everybody and make sure everyone's still doing really, is healthy and doing well. Yeah. And it is, it's nice too, to know that our children can see the same doctor as babies, as they do as children, as they can as adults, hopefully. Um, I know, I saw the same doctor a few years ago that delivered my husband, um, you know, so he saw patients that whole time. And it's it's nice to have that continuity of care um, with the clinic. And especially if you end up seeing them a lot, like if you have a higher risk pregnancy or something and you're spending a lot of time there, it's really nice to see the same folks. So... We're going to start with some super in-depth, serious questions. First thing, do you notice or care if patients don't shave their legs? <laughs> this, is, this is important stuff right here. You know, I never notice, and people constantly apologize. Constantly. So <laughs> I would say at least once a week, someone says, oh, I, I'm so sorry I didn't shave my legs. I'm like, oh my, like, it's winter in Iowa. Do you think anybody is? Like, no. So <laughs> I honestly never noticed that. What I notice more is people that I would expect to have hairy legs that don't have hair on their legs because then I worry, oh, do you actually have a vascular problem or diabetes? <laughs> Interesting. So I pay much more attention to that than I do people shaving their legs. So what you're saying is we should not shave our legs so that you have a better view of our cardiovascular health. I think that would be very reasonable. Cool. I'm, I'm going to go with that. I like it. Especially so, in the wintertime. Yeah. Especially. I'm from Canada, so I don't want to shave my legs in the winter either. 
Absolutely. So the other thing that has come up in conversation fairly recently, why do we all hide our underwear at the doctor? You know, we, we put it in the gown and we fold our clothes and we always put our underwear, like, hidden in there. Like, presumably you assume that we're wearing them. So why do we hide them? And do doctors hide them when they go to other doctors? That's a great question. And yes, we absolutely do. I fold up the little packet yeah. just like everybody does with me. And I have no idea why. <laughs> just fold them up in the pants, you know, yeah. tuck them on the chair. It's so weird. I have no idea why. <laughs> yeah, I, I was talking to a friend about the fact that even like at the fertility clinic or like going in for OB appointments that you still like hide your undies, despite the fact that your doctor's going to be like in there. And you're like, mm-hmm. they can't know I was wearing underwear when I walked through the door. Like, <laughs> I would think they'd want to know that you were wearing underwear. I don't know. Anyway. Okay, well, now that we've really hit the okay, yeah, topics, that, yeah, we can that's, that's the good yeah. stuff right there. <laughs> Burning question. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you already touched on the the idea of of, well, I guess exercise and nutrition and those types of things. But one of the things that that kind of comes around to is weight, which ends up being one of those things that gets talked about a lot, both in adults and children. Um, How can we discuss um, weight as a possible risk factor when it comes to health, but also not shame people into thinking that all their health problems would just disappear if they were to lose weight? Because some fat people, you know, their experiences with doctors is that their doctors won't even discuss their medical concerns outside of telling them lose weight first and then we can deal with it. I think that's an excellent question. Um, You know, I don't think it's ever helpful or kind to shame someone for the way they look. Um, I don't, and, and honestly, the conversation tends to shut down. If that's the first thing that you lead with, no one wants to talk about, well, how can I be healthier? Uh, but by the same token, like you said, obesity is a risk factor for a lot of other disease processes. And, you know, in order to be healthy, being at, being at a healthy weight makes it easier to avoid some of those down the road health concerns. Um, but like you said, you know, there, there's su- there is such a thing as skinny fat. So just because people have, you know, a BMI between 18 and 25, which is what we deem normal, does not mean that they're metabolically healthy. Um, there are actually estimates if you um, look at people's, um, so fasting, fasting insulin levels is not a test that we um, do for very many people, but it is one of the most sensitive indicators if people are metabolically healthy, like they are processing their food and sugar in a way that, and how, how it's supposed to. And there are estimates that up to 90% of Americans are not metabolically healthy. If you look at those more sensitive indicators, which we are not really trained to do, really the functional medicine doctors do that more than pretty much anyone else. It's not very mainstream in Western medicine to test those things. But when they look at um, population-wide studies, most of America is metabolically unhealthy. And we know that leads to problems. But like you said, I I don't think that you can, you can't just look at a person and say you're metabolically unhealthy. You know, you have people who maybe have an elevated BMI, but are very physically active and fit. And, you know, that makes a big difference. Um, so I, I, I think it is a, it's a, 
It's a difficult and complicated question and one that, you know, I, I think everyone struggles with. Um, we all know that we need to do things to be healthier so we, you know, have a long life and a long health span, but it's a lot easier said than done. And, um, and I don't think shaming people into, into improving their diet is, is useful or helpful. Um, I think you really need to be open about it and have an honest conversation, but people need to be supported and not shamed. I know too, as a patient, it's a lot easier to address things like weight and healthy eating when it's seen as one risk factor in a whole array of things versus it's your fault because you're fat and that's the only thing we're going to talk about and also anything else is probably because of your anxiety so that's it problem solved <laughs> yeah so one of the things that's kind of like a, a stereotype of rural medicine is that you know the the doctor would fix your kid or something and they'd pay you in you know a patient would pay in chickens or whatever so if we were just going to skip insurance and all that shit and go back to paying in trade, what would your preferred payment currency be? Oh my God. I have taught, said so many times, I would love to just work on the barter system. Cause I feel like, you know, we all have skills that we can offer. So I'm, and I'm not picky. I'll take anything. I will, I will take the chickens. I will take the produce. I will like, you know, Someone wants to, to trade their, their skill in painting my house. Like, I don't care. I just, <laughs> I love the idea of, of the barter system because I do think we all, we all have talents and gifts and what a, what a better way, what a better way to share <laughs> than just to offer somebody what you're good at in return for what they're good at. So the, the actual harder hitting side of that is I know that I've seen more articles and Patients talking about, especially in bigger places, how much of their doctor's salary and career path is based on patient satisfaction and reviews and how much that impacts what kind of care doctors give because there's so much so much weight put on making people happy versus necessarily what is healthiest or most effective or telling people no or whatever. So I'm wondering what your experience has been with that. Yeah. The incentives in medicine are so backwards. Like insurance will pay for things that research has shown is not helpful. They will not pay for things that take a little more time and might be more expensive, but work a lot better. They will pay for medicines, but not physical therapy. They, you know, doctors are paid, to perform procedures that are minimally effective versus, um, you know, spending time to actually sit down and talk with patients, you know, and, and give them an exercise plan and say, Hey, this actually will fix your problem, but they don't get paid to do that. They get paid to do the expensive $20,000 surgery that may or may not be effective. Um, so all of the incentives in medicine are so backwards. Um, I would say, I think it is true that more, more and more places are going toward using, you know, physician ratings and, and things like that as part of a compensation package. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think we'll ever get to the point where it's, um, where it's the only consideration, but 
Um, it certainly, it certainly is part of it, and I'm I'm sure, like we've all received the questionnaire when once you leave your doctor's office, tell us how your visit went, and um, and the the administrators really do put a lot of weight on on your your grade, I guess, from from patients, um, and and it's sometimes really hard because. I mean, there's a lot of health information out there now, which I do really think is a good thing. I think informed patients coming in can be really helpful. But the flip side of that is there's a lot of information that isn't accurate, doesn't come from reliable sources, and, and it's hard not being a medical professional sometimes to differentiate between, you know, what's... Um, what's good information from a good reputable source and what's not. And it takes a long time to kind of talk through people when they come in and say, I want this. And you have to say, well, in, in my medical judgment, I, I don't think that's a good idea and here's why, but it takes a long time explaining. And, and you know, when they want you to see more patients in less time, it, you know, sometimes it's easier to say, fine, whatever you want. But I realized anytime I've done that, I've only gotten bit in the ass. So <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, it's worth it to me to take the time to say, I hear you. I understand what you're saying to me. Here's why I think that's not a good idea and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, funny, a side story. My nine-year-old stepson, we have this constant battle about screen time because there's all this research showing how detrimental excessive screen time is for developing brains. But he, you know, he's nine and he wants to watch TikTok and YouTube and, and play his video games. And so it's this constant battle. And, you know, we're, we were negotiating recently. Oh, and he's like, oh, can I have like 30 more minutes a day? And I was like, you know what? Like it can cause brain damage. I don't think it's a good idea. And he goes, Cole, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> which I just thought was hilarious. <laughs> and, um, but that's, that's like the conversation that I have a lot of times with patients. They're like, they bring it to me and they say, well, but I read this and it has to be true. And it just takes a while to explain, eh, maybe not a good idea, but I mean, I definitely have gotten poor ratings from patients who say, like I went there and I wanted an antibiotic and she didn't give me one and they're upset by it. And I try to explain why I didn't think that was a good idea. And some people take it well and some people not so much. I just, I'm at the point in my life where I've realized you can't please everybody. So let's stop trying. <laughs> We're all just doing the best we can. Right. Well, I'm going to bump my next question up then. Um, and I wrote these questions at 4 a.m. So at first it just said doctors versus patients, who's the bigger jerk? And I wasn't sure what I meant by that. Um, but I'm realizing, <laughs> I think, what I meant was that this is one of the other real benefits of seeing the same doctor consistently is that it does make it easier to know when your doctor's saying no to something because it's actually not the best option versus I don't give a shit what you think. And yeah. I'm a doctor and I'm saying no. Um, so I'm wondering how we can enable more patients to advocate effectively while recognizing that doctors presumably know more about medicine, 
while patients presumably know more about themselves and what they're experiencing and how we can do research without seeming and or being presumptuous jackasses about <clears throat> what we're finding when we do it. Um, I know I do really appreciate that generally when I come to you with something I've found, um, I know there have been times that we've you've gone a different direction, but it's nice to know that I'm being considered before I'm being shut down on something, you know, and it's it's nice to have the relationship where I trust that you are actually considering what I say, even if I'm totally full of shit and you, we both know it, you know. Um, so I'm wondering how we can um, empower more people to have a good relationship with their their medical staff. I, I think I really like when patients come in with with information um there's there's also this thing in medicine where even really good research takes on average like eight to ten years to trickle down to um to actual medical providers before it's you know before it gets incorporated into guidelines and before we're aware of it and so you know i will never say oh i know everything about this subject matter because i know that i don't <laughs> um so I think the best thing patients can do is if, if you find, you know, good research and a good source, I am always happy to, to look into it because I, I know there's stuff I don't know. And, but, you know, by, by the, um, you know, by the same token, someone coming in and saying, well, my great aunt Sally on Facebook says, doesn't hold the same weight as, look, I found this journal article. Would you mind looking at it? Um, so yeah, if I, I think bringing, bringing good quality research to your doctor is never a bad thing. And you know, there, I, I will be totally being totally fair. There absolutely are doctors whose ego gets in the way and says, well, I know everything about this and I don't need to listen to you. So there are, there are those doctors out there. I will not pretend that there aren't. Um, but I think I think most of us, and I think especially most like primary care doctors who really do form long-term relationships with patients, by and large, most of us are very happy if you bring in, you know, something, a good body, you know, a piece of research that we can look at and say, oh, well, I, I didn't realize this, but this actually looks like a pretty good study. And that seems like a reasonable thing to try. You know, I, I think that's the best thing for patients to do to advocate for themselves. You've been talking a lot about having relationships with people and especially in rural medicine. I mean, those relationships often kind of extend outside of the doctor's office, like for example, being on one of your patients' podcasts. Um, so what is it like for, for you mm -hmm. personally um, to have to do things like give bad news to people that you know well or you know even you know in a smaller scale like maintain boundaries around you know this is not a doctor's office if someone asks you for advice in the grocery store <laughs> versus like in an appointment like how how do you I guess how do you look after yourself being a, a rural doctor you know the grocery store questions happen much less frequently than I was worried that they would happen. Well, that's good. <laughs> it is good. Um, 
but you know it is it is a balance to be part of a of a smaller community and you know especially with you know the the giving the giving bad news and and you know frequently the bad news is something like oh i think you might have a problem that i don't know how to fix and you need to go see some specialist you know you need to see oncology or surgery or cardiology and and you know a doctor or provider with a skill set that i i don't have so one of the hardest things for me is not not having enough information to give to somebody to say, here's exactly what the process will look like. You know, like if I have to hand a patient off to a, a specialist because they have something that I don't know how to deal with or I don't have the skill set to manage, um, yeah, one of the hardest things is I, I can't answer their questions all the time. You know, I don't know all the steps that are that are going to come next. And um so that's, that's really, that's difficult for me. And I try to find out as much as I can before delivering the bad news. Like, so I at least know the next step, like we have this appointment set up for you and you are going to see the specialist type of thing. Um, but, but you know, it's, it's challenging and, and I like most of my patients and I, so it's, it's never nice to give bad news to someone that you like. <laughs> um, but it's just, you know, fortunately I don't have to do it Fortunately, I get to give good news more than bad news, I think, so. It's my question. I was just over here thinking about bad news. Um, my next question just says access to reproductive care, WTF. Um, and I know this is something that's connected with the having to give bad news to people and being a patient who's been in that position with you. Um how can we, I'm trying to even think of how to put this. How can we effectively stop the government from inserting themselves in the doctor patient uh, relationship? I, you know, when I was in the position of having to make these decisions, I don't really want the state's opinion on it. And I don't really want the state making that decision. You know, when I was in the position of having to decide whether to abort the boy child for the safest treatment path for the melanoma, um, I don't really want to have to to skip all the doctors that are consulting to go to a medical board at the state and get their permission to do something. Um, so I'm wondering what your your thoughts are on this and how we can tell them to shut it because I don't Canada is a different situation but I'm sure they're not immune to these things either so this is a really difficult question and one that I am very passionate about um I feel all the time like all, all kinds of outside groups are inserting themselves into the doctor-patient relationship. The one I honestly have the most difficulty with is insurance companies. When I say, this is the best treatment, and insurance company says, nope, sorry, <laughs> pick a different thing. We're not gonna cover this one. Um, and I don't have a good solution for that. And I also don't have a good solution for how to keep um, politicians and, and the state from 
inter- inserting themselves, especially into issues they don't understand, um, is the most frustrating thing as a healthcare provider. When I see when I see the debates on abortion happening, and it is just blatantly false information, like we're just gonna we. Abortion doctors throw live babies into trash cans and all this other ridiculousness. I'm just thinking, who like who thinks this is true? But obviously people do. Um, so the you know everything is so caught up in misinformation and just at incorrect things, not based at all on medicine or science. Um, that's that's what I find the absolutely most frustrating. So I. I keep telling people to vote, but unfortunately that's not being very effective. So <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the best um, course of action is, except for, you know, as medical providers continuing. I write, I write letters to my um, representatives all the time. Every time they vote on something stupid, I, I write a letter and I say, here's why you're wrong. <laughs> so I think that's a really important thing for medical people to to do um, because so many of these debates are completely surrounded by misinformation and because and there are not very many healthcare providers in legislators um, in legislatures at the state or the federal level so um, so it's challenging because they're making laws on things that they don't they're not fully informed about I don't think so does it seems like that's so much of it too from a patient perspective is if it seemed like they had any actual knowledge about what they were legislating on and then they made a mm-hmm. a well thought out informed decision it might be different but when it's people saying you know if a woman doesn't want to get pregnant her body has ways of shutting that down and you know yeah <laughs> no no abortions after six weeks when so many people don't know they're pregnant until well after six weeks and this, that, and the yeah. other that I'm just like, you, you guys, this there's no actual basis in fact here. So no, I don't have a lot of faith in your decision making at this point, you know. Um, and yes, insurance companies, well, just insurance companies, whatever. <laughs> Yeah. And there are so many other layers to to providing abortion care. Um, You know, a lot of residency programs actually take place in Catholic hospitals. And so OBGYNs coming out of those programs don't even learn how to perform, um, perform an abortion or or sometimes even like tubal ligations um, because the Catholic hospitals don't allow those procedures. And so where they train, they don't learn how to do them. And you know, there's there's a lot of barriers set up. So, for instance, when I when I came to Wacon, I really wanted to. Um, so the uh, mifepristone, which is you know commonly known as as the abortion pill, um, it's actually one of two pills that you use for a medical abortion. Um, but you need to be specially licensed in order to um, prescribe it. So not everyone can prescribe it. So when I came here, I wanted to do that. And uh, my employer basically said, well, if there are complications, you don't um, you don't have the surgical privileges to do a DNC if there's bleeding or complications. So we're not going to let you get your license to prescribe it for Pristone. And I said, well, can then can you learn? Can you teach me how to do 
DNCs. And they said, well, what happens when you're not there? There's no backup or coverage for you. So no. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really an uphill battle, even for people like me, for whom, you know, I, I think abortion is a human right. And pregnancy is a very difficult journey in life. There's a very decent chance, at least in the United States, that a woman dies during part of pregnancy and childbirth. And I feel like that's not, it's not a decision to be taken lightly. And if there's any reason that you want an abortion, you should have access to one. But even for me, feeling very passionately about that and wanting very much to provide that care, there are all these barriers. And, and so it's something that I, I've not been able to do. Well, that's so frustrating as a rural patient too, because I don't even know where our mm -hmm. closest abortion provider would be, but I'm guessing it's at least an hour and change away. And that's not, I, you know, that's not feasible. It's not. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think Des Moines is the closest. That's what, so, four hours I mean, from here? Yeah, three and a half, four hours. More or less. So, uh, yeah, and, I, and I've had to have this conversation with patients before who say, you know, I, I, you know, I want an abortion for whatever reason. And it's really difficult for me to counsel them about, well, you know, you're going to have to drive hours and hours and hours away or, you know, or cross state lines and drive hours and hours the other way. <laughs> um, and, and so it's, it's really challenging to know how, how to best counsel patients that want that just because it is, it's so difficult to access that. And the laws are changing constantly now um, since Roe v. Wade was overturned. You know, it's hard to keep, and we, you know, we live in a corner of the state where we're actually very, we're very close to parts of Wisconsin and Minnesota. And so sometimes it's easier to get health care in a different state than it is to drive to some place within our same state where maybe the same service is um, available. But, you know, it's, you really have to keep up on the laws because the laws are changing so quickly. It's in the, on the, in, sorry, the state laws are changing so quickly. It's hard to keep up with, well, where is it legal? Where can I send you? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> My head's going in a lot of different directions. And I, you know, like I, I know that my my Canadianism is showing through because there's so much of the insurance side that I just don't understand at all, right? Like that that doesn't doesn't compute. But I'm sure that you know there's there yeah yeah I. for sure. Um, and even you know the the idea of writing a review of your doctor's appointment that is not something I have ever come across. Um, yeah, but I mean access to all health services by qualified medical professionals is something that people in rural areas, I mean, that's who we're talking to, but, you know, we understand the, the limits of geography and all those types of things, but, but being able to access the services we need when we need them is a human right, like you said, right? And abortion is included in those services that we, that we should have access to if it's, if it's necessary for us. Um, I'm going to go into the direction of the kind of the more parenting questions. Um, so what is something that you wish you could tell us parents um, about our kids in terms of, you know, like 
not like the detailed medical medical stuff necessarily, but but what what do you wish that you could get through to parents when they're when they're in your office or the things that that we worry about? You know, I especially when I used to um, when I used to do OB and deliver babies, especially first time parents were so nervous. Like, how am I going to take care of this little human when it when I bring it home? And what I, what I told all of them and that I, and I hope sunk in is, you know, infants need to be loved and fed and that's basically it. Like they're, they're probably going to be fine <laughs> if they are loved and fed. Like that, that's it. And if you have a worry, you come to somebody who knows how to evaluate that worry. Like those, those are the important things. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not as important to have, you know, all the, all the fancy gadgets and things. And it really is, you know, love your children. That's what you need to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, as they get older, you know, I know that sometimes parents worry about, you know, whether you're worrying too much <laughs> or not enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you help people decide when they do need more help, whether that's medically or developmentally, you know, milestones, all that kind of stuff. How do you support parents who are in that kind of like, I'm just not sure, or I think something's off, but I don't know. I, I mean, I, I may see your child, like even in the early years when we're having a lot of appointments, you know, I might see your child 20 minutes every few months, you know, and you see them every single day. So I, Am you know I I have come across parents who are you know maybe over overthinking it or over worrying, but most often I find parents know their children best. Like if you think there's a problem, probably there is, and you know hopefully I can help you figure out you know well where where can we get you help? What what additional help do they need? You know they're. Are, there are a lot more services now than there were even even 20 years ago for kids with developmental delays, um, you know, chronic health conditions or or problems. You know, there's just there's a lot more resources, and so you know my my general my general feeling is usually parents know their kids best. If you think there's something wrong, it at least bears further investigation. Um, and, you know, hopefully your, your family doctor can be the person to say, well, here's, here's where I think you can get the help that, that you might need. Um, so I, I consider that really to be my role. And I know as a, a parent, something that has helped me is when you're not sure, or if you feel like your doctor is maybe going to be dismissive, is to have some documentation. Just write some things down, like really have a list when you go in, because sometimes you get in that office and you're like, uh, I can't remember what it, it was I was actually concerned about. But if you have the list of things, you're like, here are the things that I'm seeing that maybe, you know, are not the same as other kids or not the same as my other children or, you know, that I'm noticing in these situations, like they might be more willing to to listen to to your concerns if you've got kind of a bit of backup and, and also just that reminder to yourself to be like, these are my concerns. Like, don't let the office scare you into thinking, oh, it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. It's yeah, it's, it's not really a big deal. I think in general, a symptom diary for anybody of any age is the best thing to do. Like if you have a concern, 
write down like this is the symptom I had. This was the day I had it. Like this is these are the associated things um, because it is you, you know there's so many things and and especially when it comes to you know well child appointments there are so many things that we want to ask to to assess and make sure that you know they're that we're happy with how your child is growing and developing and if they're meeting their milestones and so forth. Um, so there's a lot of talking we want to do at you. <laughs> and and sometimes I think parents' concerns sometimes get a little lost in the shuffle. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree completely. Writing down, um, writing things down is the best way, I think, to really know. Because a lot of times patients will come to me with a concern um, and they'll say, oh, well, this hurts. And I say, well, where does it hurt? When does it hurt? What happens around? And they say, oh, well, I don't know. And like, it's hard to remember if this is. You right. Know, and did it start six months not... ago or six weeks ago? I can't really remember what day At or only. time or, yeah, if I was doing a certain activity. So, yeah, writing down symptoms. Yeah. Writing down symptoms is the best thing you can do. <laughs> I know, too, as a patient, one of the worst things is when you leave an appointment and realize that you forgot to ask about something or say something. And then you have to do things like Facebook and your doctor about the arthritis in your foot, which is embarrassing. But yes, I'm also a huge proponent of writing things down because otherwise I know for myself, especially with something with the kids, if I'm worried about it, it seems like it happens every day where if I actually write it down and then I can look back and be like, oh, it's actually only happening every three weeks. Like, it's just that I'm thinking about it. So it seems like it's an all the time thing or it actually is an all the time thing, but it doesn't seem like a big thing. So I'm not thinking about it. And oh, look, it is happening every day. Maybe I should concern myself with whatever this thing is. So one of the big things, especially the last few years, has been physician burnout. And I'm wondering how, as patients and as community members, we can be supportive of our medical teams. Um, because you guys are really getting screwed from a lot of directions. And especially with things like the, the patient satisfaction surveys and that, it's really, it seems really unfair and shitty because there's stuff that's not your fault and there's stuff that you cannot fix. I mean, that's just how it works. And, you know, because we are in communities with each other and in small towns and we know each other, um, it seems that much more important to take care of people and so i'm wondering how we can besides you know paying you in chickens or live basil <laughs> plants that you can then kill yourself you know how we can do better <clears throat> you know i i think i think honestly everybody is burning out right now um you know, not just the medical professionals, like the last few years have been really difficult for people, you know, a lot of the the social norms that we had been accustomed to were completely upended. Um, you know, there was a lot of um, socialization that didn't happen um, the last couple of years. So I, I feel like really everyone's burning out. I've started doing a thing I call joy prescriptions. <laughs> Where I tell patients, you know, I want you to do something every single day for five minutes that brings you joy. And the number of people I get that say, well, I don't know what brings me joy is terrifying. <laughs> and then I say, well, that's your first assignment then. It's figure out like something that brings you joy. And then you have to do it five minutes every day. 
And I, and I really think that it's, you know, just doing, taking a little time to take care of yourself pays dividends in the long run. Um, and you know, I, I know I, for far too long, just said, okay, yes, I will do, like, I will do everything. I'm going to do everything for everyone else. And you empty your cup and then you, you know, there's nothing left for you. And so the other thing I've started doing recently is saying no, and it's the best. <laughs> Nobody says no enough. And I've just recently started doing it and I love it. Well, then I'm really glad that you agreed to be on her. I agree to do fun things. I said no to something recently too, and it was fantastic. So you have a project coming up, which I'm assuming probably brings you joy. Um, You're starting a YouTube channel. Is that correct? And what is it called? And what are you going to be doing on the YouTube? I am. So we are, um, I'm in the process of making a cooking with Dr. Coley channel. Um, And this really stems from the number of times every single week I have to fight with people to eat their vegetables. (laughs) I'm guessing it's not just the children. Everybody everybody tells me, well, we're meat and potato folk. It's not. No, I have like (laughs) 70-year-olds with like really terribly controlled diabetes and heart disease and well, we're just meat and potato folks. And I'm like, I just don't want you to have another heart attack. Like, really, can we, like, I'm not taking away the meat and potatoes, like, but could you fill half your plate with veggies? And people's idea of like, like a healthy vegetable is like iceberg lettuce with ranch dressing. And I say, well, I I don't think that's the healthiest choice. (laughs) So I'm just, I'm really tired of having the same conversation over and over again. Um, and I really, I really love to cook. It's what I do for like stress relief. And I real, I was going to offer a cooking class, um, but it turns out there's all these like for my patients, but it turns out there's all these rules with Medicare that you can't give free stuff to people. And so I couldn't offer this class <laughs> that I wanted to and you know, just have all these like older Midwesterners who are just like so set in their ways, right? And not one of them wants to eat a vegetable. So I figured, well, maybe an easier way to get this message out broadly is to to start a YouTube channel and with just how to incorporate vegetables into your life. Because people think that vegetables don't taste good. They think they're expensive. And that just, that really just isn't the case. Um, so it's going to be not, not entirely vegetarian channel, but like plant heavy foods. Cause I feel like that's what people have the most difficulty, um, kind of incorporating into their diets. Um, so really heavy on vegetables, like beans and legumes, just kind of plant forward cooking to, to try to give people a resource to, okay, it's not, you know, it, it, you can incorporate it. Like it's not, it doesn't have to be hard to incorporate vegetables. I won't even take away your meat and potatoes. Just like, please eat some broccoli sometimes. So, <laughs> as the wife of one of your patients who might believe that iceberg lettuce with ranch bacon bits and cheese on top counts as a salad. Sorry, Jim, apparently it doesn't. Um, have you thought about maybe <laughs> Tell Jim running like 
half a screen of tractor videos at the bottom of your cooking videos so that they'll watch them or like interspersing little videos of cows in between to get them to like or oh what's it called um I love this you, idea <laughs> when you put in like little snippets of something that like your your brain doesn't consciously see um like Oh, like yes. subliminal yes. messaging? We'll just start putting it in all the tractor <laughs> videos on YouTube. There will be subliminal messaging for, like, kale. Perfect. You know, all these farmers are going to start asking it for, like, tofu and curries and kale and shit. And everyone <laughs> who cooks for these people is going to be like, what? All right. You know, it's going to be amazing. And my husband is doing better. I think I'll, this is a brilliant idea. for him. Um, he is making an effort but yeah I think subliminal messaging or some tractor videos might be the way to go because, I like it I think there is a real assumption that eating healthier means all tofu all the time and never mm -hmm. eating anything that you actually want to eat again um, and that's sad mm -hmm. and also not controlling your diabetes does really, really, really bad things. So, yeah. Yes. I think people miss what the uh, fallout can be of that. So. Uh-huh. All right. And I watched your, your intro video and it was adorable. So we'll make sure to put a link in. <laughs> Thanks. So that people can watch you. I just had, we've, we've learned some things during filming. We, so my, my husband is helping me with this. We are not videographers. We don't really know what we're doing. <laughs> so we said, we welcome feedback. <laughs> there you go. We ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or made up to ensure that you win. I mean, I make an excellent cheesecake. But those recipes aren't going on the channel. <laughs> That's only for the county fair. I think I really could win a cheesecake making contest at the county fair. I really do. But I you'd probably put fruit on it. it. Yeah, totally. it. That sounds delicious. So we'll go ahead and move into our cussing and discussing segment. We've registered for an online platform called SpeakPipe where you can leave your cussing and discussing entries for us and we will play them on the show. So go to speakpipe.com backslash barnyard language and leave us a voice memo or you can always send us an email at barnyardlanguage at gmail.com and we will read it out for you. Katie, what are you cussing and discussing this week? Well, I wrote down children or humans, um, but I do actually remember what I meant by this. It's so, so easy, and I am saying this as a reminder to myself, it is so easy to get so caught up in, my kids should be excited to go to school. They should do all their chores without ever talking back. They should do this. They should do this. They should never talk back or complain or want anything different or cause problems or whatever else. And I mean, my kids are just barely six and four. And if I really think about it, if somebody pushed me around to do all the shit that I expect them to do without complaint, I would lose my mind. And, you know, the boy child this morning was saying he didn't want to go to school because he doesn't want to learn anything else. His brain is full. He's done. He wants to stay home and play tractors. He doesn't want to go to school. He doesn't want to, you know, he's done. And I'm sitting here thinking about, I'm trying to learn this new editing software for the podcast, and my brain is full after like five minutes of trying to learn new stuff. But I expect my four-year-old to just <laughs> trot happily off to school every day to learn more stuff. 
and you know it can take me an hour to get going in the morning and to get dressed and eat breakfast but i expect them to be able to do it in 15 minutes when they don't get to choose what they're wearing or what they're eating or where they're going and that they should just shut up and go do it and don't give me a hard time about it and it is hard because on the one hand just shut up and go eat your breakfast i you know you're four i don't care what you think but i do very much care what they think and it's hard to balance caring and and wanting them to feel like they have some agency in their lives with also knowing that sometimes you just have to shut up and eat your breakfast and go to school um, and it's hard to take it too seriously when i know full well what he's learning in preschool and it's not like they're you know it's not like he's in a military academy or something so anyway yeah it's a, it's a hard one to remember though especially when it impacts your you know You've also got in your head, like, if you don't leave now, we're going to be late. You know, all the things that as adults, we're keeping track of at all times, right? Like, if my kids are going to miss the bus, then I'm going to have to drive them. You know, like all the all the down the road consequences where you're just like, can you just do the thing? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But they're also allowed to have feelings, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> all right. Coley, what do you have to cuss and discuss? Oh goodness. Um, is this, is this something, something that I think about that makes me want to cuss? Is that the, the point of this? It can be. Yeah. This is just like, yeah, the random, either like the little tiny thing that, that bugged you this morning to like society at large, <laughs> whatever. This is free reign. Gotcha. <laughs> I, I've honestly been really thinking about how, why, like, why is winter so long? I know this is something I can do nothing about, but we're only a month in and I'm sick of it already. And Agreed. <laughs> this is also, I, I just am thinking like, you know, can, can just, can just the whole world just like move south during the winter? Just, <laughs> or shouldn't we all just like live in the temperate zone? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I just need to do Maybe. that. Maybe yeah, I just that could be it, yeah. Maybe There's that. something yeah. about the 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 <laughs> longer <laughs> nights too, the the darkness. It, you know, it's you know, in the daytime when it's cold, I seem to be able to cope better, but you know, like once it's dark and cold, then that's that's a harder pill to swallow. I find that interesting I agree. because I prefer when it's dark because then nobody expects me to go outside. <laughs> When it's light, I feel like there's some <laughs> expectation that I might leave the house. Yes, but like today I'm looking outside and there's snow, but at least the sun is shining. So it's like, you know, I can look out there and think that it's it's not that bad. But yeah, when it's dark at four o'clock, then yeah, I don't want to do anything, whether I'm inside or outside. That's no. So Arlene, what okay. do you have to custom discuss today? So this one is uh, semi, like medically related, I suppose, and I'm not blaming anybody. It's She's just one of those. To show you, no, I do not. <laughs> no, um, it's just that that thing where you call the doctor's office and you need to book an appointment, and it seems semi urgent to you, and they're like, "Uh, yeah, the the closest appointment we've got is like six weeks, or two months away," and you're like, "Well, I." 
guess that's my only option. <laughs> I will take it. But then, you know, say that there's a prescription that needs renewed or any of those types of things, then there's all those extra hoops that you have to jump through where it's like, yeah, well, I don't have another doctor's appointment for another two months. So I guess you have to fax my doctor and or whatever technology they use now to talk to doctors. I think they still use faxes at my pharmacy. I don't know why they do. <laughs> they still use faxes. It's the most yeah, the, the use of fax machines. Why are we still <laughs> yeah. using faxes? Yeah. Yeah. So then, yeah, that drawn out process of, okay, so yeah, I do have a doctor's appointment, but then the prescription is another whole thing. And yeah, just the delays. And I get it. Everybody's overworked and sometimes you can't fit more appointments in into a day, but I just don't like waiting for that kind of stuff. But you know, can I can I absolutely pick a new get another one? <laughs> um, because I think this is like understaffing of medical clinics. I think is a problem in many many places, but especially mm-hmm. rural places. It is ridiculously hard to recruit people to come work, and it does mean it's you know it does mean longer wait times for patients and. And that, you know, your medical providers are, are overworked and, and you still aren't getting to see them in a timely fashion. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of people in the U.S. will say, oh, well, we, we can't have, you know, a single payer system or socialized medicine because, you know, then, then care will be rationed. And I think what people don't understand is that care is already rationed. We just don't ration it in an intelligent or... Um, in a way that makes any sense. Um, Mm -hmm. We're not deliberate about it. So instead what happens is there aren't enough healthcare professionals and where there, you know, there are some, there are some, you know, mostly suburban type environments where there are plenty of doctors and you don't have to wait, but in the more difficult places to practice that have fewer resources like rural places and like urban places, um, we are, we are rationing care. We're just not talking about it. Yeah. And it's probably not so. being done in a, in an equitable across the board way, right? No. Where, where some people, some people uh, are maybe not, not seeing that it's being rationed because they're maybe in a different system than the other people who are, are waiting. Yeah, are we, absolutely. Are add a second cussing and discussing too? Bring it on. It's a, it's a double cussing kind of week. This concept of the the way the government controls prescription writing, if it seemed like it was actually fixing the opioid epidemic, fine. But this crap about things like not being able to get ADHD meds for more than 30, what, 28 days at a time, if I didn't need meds to make my brain able to remember things... I might have a chance of getting my meds filled on time. But, you know, there should be some route that if I can prove that I'm taking my meds and I'm a 41-year-old mother, I'm not selling my meds to a bunch of, you know, college kids on the street, I feel like I should be trusted with more than 28 days worth of medication. Or when, say, my insurance company refills, refuses to pay for a prescription because they disagree with my doctor about what my prescription should be. Or pharmacies that second-guess your prescriptions. 
or anybody else. I just, you know, it's, if it seemed like it was fixing anything, it would be different, but we still have all these drug problems and it's still a pain in the ass to get stuff filled. So that's my thoughts on that. Well, and it's just, such, <laughs> it really is. I mean, it makes life harder for patients and for medical providers, because I mean, if somebody is stable on a medication, you know, on their blood pressure medication, I will give them a month's worth with a few refills and say, you know, hey, come back for a recheck in six months or whatever. But, you know, I can't do that on with the controlled substances. Like I need to write a new prescription every single month after you call in and request it. So it's harder for everybody. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's exactly the problem is that it's it's not in any way efficient for anyone involved it's not efficient for the pharmacy either because they have to you know no. jump and do it when it does finally come through and it's just a pain in the ass anyway arlene did you have a second cussing and discussing you wanted to add i think i'm good for today i uh i feel like i'm gonna uh as a as a canadian i need to uh curtail my <laughs> comments a little bit other than saying yay socialized medicine <laughs> <laughs> I know there are problems in the system, but um, yeah, I know that hearing the two of you talk about it and all the other stories that we hear from here, um, you know, yes, there's there's issues in our system, but don't let your politicians and your insurance companies convince you that it's all that bad because there's there's a lot of a lot of good that's happening, and um, I think that you know, hopefully that if if other systems are looked at critically and you know with without without all the the biases and the you know and often that comes from that's where it's coming from who's getting paid right so uh but but look at what other countries are doing and actually yeah make some decisions based on on facts rather than believing the stories anyway thank you so much dr Coley for you, uh, joining this us today so if someone fun. wanted to get in touch or follow your youtube channel not in get in touch in terms of like asking for medical advice but uh yeah if people want to watch your cooking videos <laughs> where will they be able to find you um so it, the this the channel is just called dr Coley, so like d-r-c-o-l-e-y that is great we will look forward to watching them and see whether there's uh tractors involved or not gonna add some now maybe you could even <laughs> just line some toy ones up on your counter or just some tractor mm -hmm. books or something we have something you could borrow if you need them there you go great thank you so much thank you for joining us on barnyard language if you enjoy this show we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyard language to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.